Okay, good afternoon, and welcome to today's class, which is the Torah reading of Parshas Korach, and we're going to talk about jealousy. But before we begin, just a little uh, tidbit of what we are uh, just, you know, always we'd like to mention what today's day in Jewish history is, especially referring to the Chabad calendar, which is today, 81 years ago, the Rebbe and his wife made it across to the shores of America safely through the uh, running away from the ravages of the Holocaust and their lives were saved miraculously by take on the boat that they took out of Portugal from France to Portugal. And today, 81 years ago today, is the day that they came and forever changed the landscape of America ever since their arrival. So today's a special day in the Chabad calendar, Jewish calendar, the world at large. As well as we are going to commemorate this Shabbos, the yard site, the day of Gimel Tammuz, the day when we no longer were able to see the Rebbe physically, but we know that spiritually he's here with us, and we'll also touch upon that as we come to the end of the class today. Today we're going to talk about the concept of jealousy in the way of how we find it in this week's Torah reading, which is that already for the past 3,334 years, um, preachers of all kinds and shapes looking to explain this week's Torah reading in a way to be able to teach about the Torah reading of Korach, talking about who this individual Korach was, and saying, listen here, fellas, look at what jealousy does. Jealousy destroys a person, takes whatever he has and takes it away, and anything of jealousy, not only will he not get what he is jealous from his fellow, but he also loses from what he has. And all different kinds of lessons that we learn of the Torah reading of Korach. And as we know, this lesson and this concept of jealousy, whether we like it or not, there's something of a virtue and a mode of people's behaviors that, good or not, is there and is here to stay. And as much as we talk about it, we know that jealousy is something which causes a person, regardless, and even a person who says, you know, I'm not the jealous kind of person, but really in every shape or form, every single person has a tinge of jealousy to them, if you want to call it, whether it's because they look with their neighbor, what kind of car their neighbor drives, what kind of home they could wear, or what kind of clothes they have, whatever it may be, all the different types of things lead to some type of level of jealousy. To the extent we can see it today in social media, you will notice that nobody ever posts on Facebook or Instagram saying, you know, today I failed miserably. Today I overpaid on what I got, unless they're complaining, of course, about a store. It's always about how their success is, their wild imaginations, what they've accomplished, what they've done, and how they're better than everybody else, of course, creating a temptation of showing, look what I have, and you should therefore want what I have. Or when we see something else that somebody has on Instagram, Facebook, and all the, even though with all the filters that we know are so fake, and that's not the real life, what we know, but all of a sudden it creates a certain type of, oh, I wish I was on that vacation. You know, nobody says, oh, look at my boring house I'm staying in. They're always posting their beautiful vacations that they're in and how much they're enjoying themselves. Why? Because there's a certain innate type of jealousy that God created within the individual. And the question is, why did God create the world in such a way that our tendency is that we always want to know why the other person is doing better than us? Why is that person doing good? Why is that person being successful? Why does that person have this and I don't have it? Or why is this innate type of level of jealousy that we have? And as we know, that jealousy is not something that is going away. And to be able to continue beating up on jealousy also is probably not going to work. So what we need to realize is 
that jealousy as well is probably not the enemy of the person. It's the way a person utilizes jealousy and what a person does with jealousy that causes them to go wrong. The problem with jealousy is not necessarily jealousy in its innate form, but it's probably more the extremes that people take it to. That because I'm jealous, I'm going to do anything to root out my competition, or because I'm jealous, I'm going to do anything to be able to be like that person. So what probably the problem is, is more the ability to be able to leave the extreme and come to some type of happy medium. And the more we continue to fight jealousy and to delegitimize it, the more we are getting worked up about it and actually falling prey to the concept of jealousy. So we have to see it from a different perspective and see what we can do about this attribute or attitude of jealousy to make it something better. Let's look at it from a different perspective. Hasidism teaches us that there's nothing in this world, the Baal Shem Tov taught us, that nothing in this world is inherently bad. It's only what human beings have done to it to make it bad. That means if God gave us something, we have the ability to either use it for the good or for the bad. And it is up to the human being with their freedom of choice that makes this thing bad. Take, for example, the emotions that we have. One of those emotions would be jealousy. Is jealousy inherently a bad attitude? Not necessarily. Hasidism will teach us, as we're soon going to see and we're going to develop in today's class, is that it is up to the individual to take that attitude and say, how am I going to view this attitude? What am I going to do with that emotion? Am I going to use it for a negative or am I going to use it for a positive? Let's take a, some, a, a very interesting story. A story that's told about two brothers who one of them later became the fifth Chabad Rebbe of Shalom Dovber. He had an older brother by the name of Reb Zalman Aaron. Reb Zalman Aaron was shorter than his younger brother. And as you can imagine, between little boys, this was a matter of contention. One would say, I'm older. The other would say, but I'm bigger. And, the, and this, was about, uh, this was an issue back and forth. Until once, the older brother, who was shorter than his younger brother, once dug a ditch and told his younger brother, get into the ditch. And when his younger brother stood in the ditch and he was standing on the regular ground, he says, look, you see, I'm taller than you. When his mother, when their mother was watching what happened, and their mother sees this whole idea unfold, their mother calls them over, Rebetz and Rivka, and calls them over and says, let me tell you something. Zalman, which was the older brother, if you want to be able to get bigger than your brother, there's no need for you to put him in a ditch. All you need to do is bring a chair and stand up on the chair and you'll be taller. And like this, you'll be bigger than him. What was the mother telling the child? The mother could have called over the children just like all the children fighting, don't get along and say, children, stop fighting with each other. What's the difference? Who's bigger? Who's taller? Why do you have to make an issue out of it? But that's not what the Rebbe Tzarifka did. What she did was on the other end, she recognized that there is an attitude, that there's an attribute here. There's something that's bothering this child. She legitimized the feeling of the child. Yes, you have legitimacy. You have a concern to be upset. Your younger brother is taller than you. There's something that makes you jealous. I understand it. But instead of using the jealousy and throwing him into the ditch, you prop yourself higher so you will become taller. The same idea is in anything that God gives us. In every single type of attitude and motion that exists in this world, we have the ability to either 
negate the individual who we're jealous of, destroy the person who's bothering us, or we can prop ourselves higher. And what we're going to talk about today is looking at this, Torah, this week's Torah reading and understanding and appreciating from the Torah reading, we will come to understand what jealousy is and how it can be used. And in order to understand this, we're going to ask four different questions, almost like the Passover Seder. An understanding about the story of Moses and Korach, getting a better understanding of who Korach was and what the story, how it unfolds. And in, gel, in general, looking how the Torah views the different characters of our great sages. So let's start with question number one. Moshe himself, as we're soon going to see, Moshe himself was seemingly a very jealous individual. Though we call Korach this week jealous of Moshe and Aaron and the Levite's position, Moshe was a person who we're soon going to see was also jealous of Aaron, jealous of Yoshua in many instances. But what's even troubling is, question number two, if Korach was such a bad guy, why would we name an entire Torah reading after such a terrible person? Step number, th question number three, is if jealousy is so bad, then why do we find that our sages at one time say the jealousy between scholars increases knowledge, but at the same time they say that jealousy is what destroys a person? And we're going to go into these in little detail. And at the same time, the Torah tells us, it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, we read it in this week's, Torah, in this week's uh, chapter 4, well, who, who is considered rich? One who is happy with his lot. So is it good to be satisfied? Is it good to not want to just sit back and be lazy? Which one is it? What should a person do and how should a person go about it? As we're going to analyze it. So let's start. Let's start from the beginning of this week's Torah reading. What happened with Korach? What, where did the story unfold? So the Jewish people are in the desert. According to many, this is after the story of the spies that happened. Last week we spoke about the spies, where they came about and spoke against and slandered the land of Israel. The Jewish people already lived through the sin of the golden calf. They lived through the sin of the complainers of complaining about the manna. And now all of a sudden Korach steps up. What was his problem? Korach steps up and he says, listen here. Moses, who made you in charge? All of us are holy. All of us heard the word of God. Who made you that all of a sudden that you pick your cousin, Aaron, to be the high priest? You pick another cousin of yours to be the leader of the tribe of Levi? Aaron. What about the... Aaron was his brother, I'm saying, but he, Korach, was his cousin. Korach was Moshe's cousin. You pick my cousin Aaron to be the... which is your brother Moshe, to be the high priest. Another cousin of yours you pick to be the tribe of Levi. What's with the nepotism of here? Why is there even hierarchy in Judaism? Why can we all be holy? We all stood by Mount Sinai. We all heard what God said. If we look at over here, this is the first time that Moshe was even challenged. And it's an interesting thing that Nachmanides mentions, because there's an interesting debate between the Ebenezer and Nachmanides of when the story of Korach happened. One says that it happened right after the story of the sin of the golden calf. One says it happened in the order that it's mentioned in this week's Torah reading right after the spies. Nachmanides says it had to happen after the spies. Why? Because if it would have happened after the golden calf, then everybody was appreciative to Moses by the very fact that he prayed for the Jewish people. And they all were spared. So nobody would have teamed up together with Korah. If you look at throughout the time, the Jewish people, the sin of the golden calf, defied and denied and went against belief in God. The, the, the sin of the complainers about the food 
denied and complained against God's love for the Jewish people. The spies complained against the land of Israel. And over here, Korah came along and tried to make a coup and destroy the concept of the belief in a tzaddik. In the belief in divine presence and a great person that God decided that he should be the one, the leader of the generation. And Korah comes along and says, who makes you in charge? We're all holy. Why are you deciding what should be, who should be? We all want to be equally holy. We should all have the same thing. Where did it come from? Korach was the wealthiest Jew at the time. Korach was the wealthiest Jew. It says that if he had 90 donkeys laden just with keys to all his warehouses. And his keys had to be made out of leather because if they were made out of metal, the donkeys wouldn't be able to carry. That's how many keys he had. That's how wealthy he was. To the extent today in Yiddish, there's an expression, if you want to say a certain person's filthy rich, they would say he's rich like Korach. And what was he complaining about? Because he didn't have power. He wasn't Moshe. His jealousy destroyed him to the core. Then he lost everything. Anarchy was something that God was not going to tolerate. And for the first time ever, we see an individual who all of a sudden, right over here in front of everybody, the ground opened up and swallowed him inside. Wow. Destroyed forever. Him, his family, everything that they owned. Right there? Right there. They complained against Moshe. Moshe, there was 250 people as we're soon going to see who challenged as well to be the high priest. They were consumed by the incense. But Korach and his family, Moshe warned them, said, you're starting up the wrong, you're barking up the wrong tree here. And God made a miracle and from the ground opened and they swallowed it to the ground. God, everything of theirs, them, Dustin and Avira, any person who was part of the coup. What was it here? What, did, what happened here that he did wrong? was his jealousy of Moshe. He had everything, but he lost it all because of his jealousy. But then all of a sudden you take a person here, who this fellow Korach, who was one you call it, the first individual to try to make a coup against God's decisions that Moshe should lead. And all of a sudden, what do we see over here? How do we remember him? We give him the name of the Torah reading. Now we're not just talking about a name, you say, but what's the big deal about a name? So first of all, a custom that Jewish people have that we call the name of a Torah reading is considered something special. But Halacha tells us that a person who had, was evil, his name should not be remembered. And the Talmud brings about a person who was, it says, Shem Rishoyim Yerkov, the name of the evil should rot, and therefore a person should not name a person, name his child after an evil person. Now, if you're not supposed to name your child after an evil person, how much more so on that portion of the Torah you should name after? And you say, well, usually we name it after the first thing that's mentioned in the Torah reading, so therefore it's called Korah. Well, we have in the book of Genesis many different Torah readings. One's called Vayetze, Yaakov, and Yaakov went out. What's the name of the Torah reading? Vayetze. Vayishlach, Yaakov, it's called Vayishlach. This week's Torah reading is called Vayikach, Korah. Call it Vayikach. Why do you have to call it Korah? Even more so, we'll take it a step further. There are others that also want to say the name Korach itself is symbolic of something evil. The word Korach in Hebrew also can mean bold. And, the, and some commentaries want to explain that the same way Korach means bold, it comes to teach us that this fellow Korach tried to empty to bold the Jewish people, take them away from their leader. Another reason that it is called Korach because the ground swallowed, made the ground bold that he came inside. 
And again, the Talmud tells us, shame reshev of the name of the wicked should be eradicated. So why in this case would we call an entire Torah reading after an individual who's called Korach? Now, just a little side tidbit here. This only goes, when we don't talk about not naming somebody after an evil person, it only goes by their personal name. There is, as we look in the Torah, there's a family called Mishpachas HaKorachi, the family of Korach. In fact, until today, there's a prominent rabbinic family from Yemen who their last name is Korach. So there is such a name as a last name, but not as a personal name, we wouldn't give it. In fact, Maimonides, when he describes every single one of the Torah readings and gives it its name, when he talks about the Torah reading of Korach, he calls it Vayikach Korach. He doesn't call the Torah reading just Korach, he calls it Vayikach Korach. But the reality is that all Jewish people across the globe look at any Jewish calendar. What's the Torah reading? It doesn't say Vayikach Korach, it says Korach. And the question is why? In a few weeks' time, we're going to have the same question when it comes to Balak, who is an evil non-Jew. And over there also we have a special reason because Balak, actually in that Torah reading, has the greatest blessings for the Jewish people which came about because of this evil individual. So again, our question, to put it simply, is if we wouldn't name a little child after an evil person, why name an entire Torah reading on this fellow Korach? To take it a step further, what was Korach's biggest sin? He was jealous. Is he the only person that was jealous? If you look through the Torah, do you recall anybody else being jealous? Many people. Let's start with one, Rachel. Rachel was a woman, that we, a woman that we consider the symbolic, the mother of the Jewish people. She is the one that we consider a person of humility, of great a level of that she was able to put her sister before her, that her sister married Jacob. And she's the one that the Torah says that she was buried on the side of the road so she should be praying on behalf of the Jewish people. But if you look in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis says that Leah had four children and all of a sudden Rachel was jealous that she didn't have any children. And she turns to her husband and says, Give me children, if not, what is, my wife, what is my life worth? And Jacob gets upset at her and says, What am I, God, the one that decides who should have children? So what do we see here? Rachel is upset that she doesn't have children. The Torah doesn't just leave it at the fact that she's upset that she doesn't have children. But the Torah uses a terminology that she's jealous of her sister. Just say she doesn't have children. She's upset she doesn't have children, which makes sense. Why does the Torah use the terminology she's jealous? Such a great woman. And the commentaries explain that in fact the jealousy by Rachel was not a negative jealousy, but it was actually a positive jealousy. She was jealous of her sister and said, my sister Leah, do you know why she has four children? Because she's more righteous than I am. She's better than I am. And therefore, she, I was mar- she merited to have children. This wasn't, in fact, the Torah wants to show that this was not a jealousy like the jealousy like the brothers had against Joseph. Where because of that, they did something and they put him into the ditch and they sold him down to Egypt, which was a negative jealousy. But this was a jealousy of actually positive. This was a jealousy where she's telling us that there was an individual here who was able to use their jealousy for a positive trait and seeing of how this would be able to bring this person to a greater great. And over here, the Torah is showing us, look at Rachel. Look at her jealousy. But that was Rachel. But let's talk about Moses. Moses, who over here is accusing Korach for being jealous of him, he himself was jealous. The Medrash tells us that even in this week's Torah reading, 
When Moses turns to the 250 people who are, will say, we want to be a Kohen, Moses says, okay, you want to be a Kohen? Go ahead. You're going to go take pans, bring incense, and bring it to the altar, and let's see if you survive. Why does Moses tell it to them? Because Moses tells the Jewish people, those that complained that they were, these were Levites that wanted to be Kohanim, and he says, listen here, there's only one God, there's one ark, there's one Torah, one altar, and one high priest. Like it or not, that's the way it is. And he says, guess what? I also want to be a Kohen. I'm jealous of Aaron. I want to be a Kohen. But I'm not. But you want to be? Try your luck. Because none of Anavihu, the two sons of Aaron, wanted to be a Kohen, and they brought sacrifice, they brought incense when it didn't. And look what happened to them. So there's your warning. And he says the incense has a certain unique quality. It has a poison in it. It can either give you life or give you death. And if it's misused, it'll give you death. If it's used properly, it'll give you life. But what was Moshe telling them? Moshe's telling the Jewish people who at the time were jealous of the position of the Kohanim. And he says, guess what? I'm jealous too. If jealousy is so bad, why is Moses telling that he's jealous as well? Don't be jealous. It wasn't your job. You weren't given. In fact, Moshe lost the opportunity. Moshe could have been Kohen Gadol, but because he refused to take the Jewish people out of Egypt until God told him to call Aaron to come along with you, that's why he lost the opportunity. But why is Moses, in the time of Korach, being accused of being the most jealous evil person of the time? What does Moshe say? I'm jealous as well. And over here he comes along and he says, I'm jealous. I also want to be the one to serve in the holy temple. But guess what? God didn't choose me. Was that the way to counter the argument? To say he's also jealous? If jealousy is something that has to be eradicated, such a terrible behavior, why then was Moses saying he's jealous as well? There's an interesting thing. You know, if you ever look at the words in the Torah, there are cantillations on top of each word. And each one makes a different tune. Nah, 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 nah. And that's the tune that you have to be able to sing. And that's how you know where the end of a verse is, where the middle of a verse is, and so on and so forth. There's one cantillation that's only found four times in the Torah. It's called the Shalshelas. It goes, ah, only four times in the Torah. The four times are in the book of Genesis, when Lot and his family were running out of Sodom. In the book of Genesis, where God, when Abraham is asking for a miracle to happen in front of him, when Joseph is in front of Potiphar, and where Moshe is slaughtering the animal and sprinkling the blood and making Aaron and his sons the high priest. There's an interesting explanation that's given for it and says, why only these four instances? What's the common denominator? What do they all have in common that they all have the same cantillation? But generally, we don't understand the cantillation. The cantillations are more of telling us the story of where you begin, where you end, what words are connected, and so on. But a specific cantillation of this one that's only found four times, what's the interesting thing? So if you look at the tune of the cantillation, it goes, ah, that's the tune. It's like going up and going down, going up and going down. It's like a person who is like in a mix match. He's not sure, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And if you look at all the um, situations that the cantillation is used, 
is in the first case where the people are leaving Sodom. Lot and his family, they want to stay in Sodom. But the angels are telling them, get out. So they're, they're torn. Should I go out? Should I not go out? Should I go in? Should I not go in? The next case is Eliezer. The servant of Avram is looking for a miracle to happen to find the right girl for Rivka. And he's praying to God, give me the right girl. He's not sure. Is this the right one or is it not the right one? Is Rivka the right one or not the right one? The next one is Joseph. He's being seduced by the wife of Paitifar. And he wants to, but he doesn't want to. He wants to be with her, but he knows it's not the right thing. So again, he has that mixed feeling. And what's the final time? Where Moshe is bringing the sacrifices and sprinkling the blood and inaugurating Aaron and his son as the Kohanim. He wants to make them Kohanim because that's the right thing to be doing. But at the same time, he feels bad. How come I can't be the Kohanim? He wants to make them the ones, but at the same time he says, I want to be the one. So he has that mix-up in his mind, and over there you have the back and forth. So what we see over here clearly is that Moshe also had a form of jealousy for being the Kohen Gadol. So what was wrong with Korach's jealousy of being the Kohen Gadol? That was not only the first time that Moshe was jealous. The, the Medrash tells us another time Moshe was jealous. Right before Moshe's passing. Joshua is going to be the leader and God tells Moshe and Joshua to come to the tent of gathering to the tabernacle. And the Medrash tells us a cloud came between the two of them and something was told to Joshua, not to Moshe. So Moshe turns to Joshua and said, what did God tell you? And Joshua says, hey, every time God told you something, did you tell me? I'm not telling you. And Moshe was jealous and says, hey, that's not fear. I want to know what God told him. And again, Moshe was jealous. So if Moshe can be jealous, why can't Korach be jealous? What was so bad about jealousy then? And if jealousy is so bad, why then do the sages tell us in the chapter uh, Ethics of Our Fathers in chapter 4, telling us that what are the three ingredients for a destructive life? Jealousy, lust, and honor-seeking is what causes a person to leave this world. doesn't give you happiness. But at the same time, the same ethics of our father, the same Talmud tells us, jealousy among scholars brings wisdom. For example, you can have two schools put right next to one another. Why? Because like this, everybody's going to become smarter. Competition is healthy for the consumer. And when it comes to knowledge, we don't talk about in business, then there's issues with causes. Hasog is gvul, one is not allowed to compete with a neighbor. That's a problem according to Jewish law. But when it comes to teaching Torah or to teaching wisdom, because when there's competitive edge within the school, that's going to cause the individuals to become smarter or learn better, competition over there is allowed. So is jealousy good or not good? And then if we continue reading in ethics of our fathers, who is considered wealthy? One who is happy with his lot. If you're happy with your lot, that means you're not jealous. But if you're happy with your lot, what's going to impetus you? What's going to give you any impetus to go further, to be able to accomplish more? You say, I'm happy. Why should I do anything? Retire today. Why should I work? And interesting, about 50 years ago, in 1972, right before Passover, when the Rebbe celebrated his 70th birthday, uh, Yitzchak Rabin, who was then the... Um, Israeli consulate in Washington came to 770 in New York to give the Rebbe blessings from the Israeli government in honor of his birthday. And in an interview that Rabin had, they asked him what he said and he, what his conversation was about the Rebbe. 
And the Rebbe asked him the question, what does it mean one who is wealthy is happy with his lot? If he is happy with his lot, then he's never going to go on to do greater, more accomplishments. He's just going to stay put where he is. So what is it? What does all this mean? What does this jealousy tell us? And what must be, after asking all these questions, there must be something deeper to the story of Korach that we haven't uncovered. And therefore, it's not just about teaching us, as we started off saying, teaching us how not to be like Korach and not to be jealous because then you lose everything you have and so on and so forth. There must be something in this story that the Torah is telling us. And it's not just about utilizing or not being jealous, but it's about utilizing the emotions and the qualities that God has given us to make sure it uses it properly and it's a motivated motivation is something done accordingly. There's a story told about a great chassid, his name was Rabbi Kusia Lepler. The reason why he was called Rabbi Kusia Lepler was because he came from the city of Lepel, which is in White Russia. He was one of the very well-known characters amongst the Hasidic, and known in the Hasidic dynasty for the very fact that he was an unbelievable, a dedicated chassid, davened for many hours, but he was also a distinguished scholar in understanding Hasidism and a very well-mannered individual. He lived a long life, almost 100 years, to the extent, the reason why he was also very well-known, because he got to meet four of the Chabad Rebbe's. From the Alter Rebbe, that means he saw the Alter Rebbe, all the way through to the fourth, fifth, uh, fourth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Marash, Rebbe Shmuel. So there was not that many people, especially then that lived for a hundred years, that that long life was something unique to him. But what was his story? What's the story behind him? So this Rebbe Kassil, growing up, was a very simple individual. In fact, what he did for a living, he sold salt. He was not considered a particular successful person in any um, specific area. Not in business, not a learning, not, you wouldn't call him the most talented person. And his learning Torah knowledge growing up was very minimal. One time in the city of Lepla, a young man was returning from the city of Lubavitch, where the Mittler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe was, and reviewed, and the custom was that as the people would travel, then they would walk by foot from Lubavitch back to their cities. And every city that they would stop in, where there was an enclave of Hasidim, they would review the Hasidim that they learned or that they heard while being by the Rebbe in Lubavitch. This young fellow, who is much younger than Rabbi Yukasil, comes into the shul and starts reviewing a Hasidic discourse with beautifully explaining it, saying it, an unbelievable, prolific articulator, unbelievable. Rabbi Kusil sitting there, he doesn't understand a word. And he's upset. He's jealous of this guy. Over here you have a guy half his age, is able to go to Lubavitch, come back, and repeat the Hasidic discourse so beautifully. And everybody's just enjoying it, and he has no clue of what's going on. So he says, you know what? All of a sudden, he got that spark ignited with him. He was stubborn. And he says, if this young guy can do it, I can do it too. Rabbi Yukasil went over to this young fellow and he says, I'll pay you for three weeks. Stay here. Teach me that Hasidic discourse. Teach it to me. Explain it to me. You have such a good way of articulation, such a good way of explaining things. Teach it to me. Three weeks he sat with him. He learned with him to the best of his ability, but was clogged. Nothing went in. Didn't penetrate. 
Rabbi Kassil traveled to the Mittler Rebbe, crying to the Mittler Rebbe, I want to learn Hasidism, I want to understand it. It just doesn't go in. The Rebbe looked at him and said, our sages tell us there's nothing that stands in the way of willpower. If you want to, you will have the ability to do it. Rabbi Kassil recognized and realized that if he puts his mind to it, he'll get it. He let his family know that he's going to be staying in Lubavitch a few months. And he used all his energy to be able to work on himself moment after moment, minute, and he first worked on one minute of the Rebbe's talks, then five, then 50, then an hour, then long hours. And he would review it one time, 10 times, 100 times, until he was able to open up his mind and he was able to understand and appreciate the teachings of the Hasidism to the extent that as he, and within a few years, there's a Hasidic book text called Imre Bina, a very difficult Hasidic discourses that the second Chabad Rebbe wrote, and he wrote them specifically for this Rabbi Yikasiya Lepler. Rabbi Yikasiya Lepler, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, once described and said, if you want to know what it really means when the Talmud says, and if you work hard, you will succeed, believe him, is Rabbi Yikasiya Lepler. He worked hard, he succeeded, and he was able to do it. Why was he able to do it? What changed in him? What gave him the impetus to be able to do it? What gave him the desire to do something, even though he always wanted to learn? But he never had that thrust, that excitement, that push. What gave him the push? Jealousy. He was jealous of that young man that came and was able to review that discourse so beautifully, so articulately. He said, I want to be like him. And that gave him the ability. Every single person has within himself a multitude of different emotions. Whether it's anger, bitterness, jealousy. Every single one of those emotions. And God gives us those emotions. Those emotions are not inherently bad. It is how we react with those emotions that make them bad or good. Take, for example, anger. Anger... One says, what can be good about anger? Anger is an anger that people do things in their ang- when they're angry that, you, that they would never think of doing. They lose whatever they can just because of anger. But imagine if a person were to use that anger and never get upset at anything. They will never, they'll just take anything, oh, that's all nonchalant about anything. Would they have a passion about anything? Anger brings a certain passion into and a certain enthusiasm and excitement into what you're doing. And therefore, if it's disrupted, you're going to be angry. It doesn't mean you have to express that anger in a terrible way. But if you lack passion and you're nonchalant about anything, nothing is going to faze you. You won't be excited about anything. Not good things, not bad things. So you need to have passion. The same idea is also when you talk about um, whether it's bitterness. If you're not going to be upset about anything, then again, what will you be bothered by? You have to take things to heart to a certain extent. As we explained at the beginning, extremes on either side, of course, is what's damaging. Taking anger to an extreme, to a negative extreme, or bitterness or upsetness to a negative extreme is what destroys people. But the emotion itself is not a bad emotion. The same idea is when we talk about jealousy. Jealousy is there to give a person an impetus to get to heights that they would not be able to get, their, uh, uh, to get on their own. A person by nature is complacent. 
A person by nature will not continue to be, go, oh, it's not a rura, unless he's forced to it. That's why, as we say, competition is good for the, uh, why is competition healthy? Because it causes the person to think out of the box. It causes you to change your way of mode. It causes you not to, so to speak, sit back and be complacent and think that everything's just going to happen on its own. If we want to be able to be successful, we cannot be lazy about it. And what causes, what helps a person to leave their laziness is the level of jealousy. Because if you want to be able to be successful and accomplished like the person next to you, you can't just sit back. You've got to do something about it. So when we talk about jealousy, there's two benefits that come from jealousy. Jealousy, if you notice, comes only when people are very similar. Nobody's going to say they're jealous of something that they cannot be or something that's not in the realm. Nobody's <laughs> jealous of the Queen of England. Because it's not something you ever plan on being, you never think you can be it, and it's not, not in your realm. But who are you jealous of? Of your neighbor that's exactly like you, but they're doing a little better. Jealousy comes from two people who are exactly the same, and therefore, they think, and that person at the age of 45 is a successful entrepreneur, and you at 45 is still schlepping stuff. Or that person at the age of 60 is sitting with a nice retirement package, and you at 60, you still got to go work for a living. That's where jealousy comes in. Jealousy is where you're doing the same exact thing, and that person's getting a better commission, and you're going to less commission. That getting is a better person pay, that you're less of a pay. What does jealousy tell us, number one? Jealousy reveals within a person that guess what? I can also accomplish it. But the, the problem with jealousy today, and the problem that Korach had about the jealousy, was that jealousy is misdirected. Instead of looking at where I can become better, they're looking at why did that guy get that? But what jealousy really is all about, and the purpose of jealousy is, to laser cut on ourselves and to look purposely and focus what we are and what we can accomplish. Jealousy helps us redirect our focus. And instead of focusing on the other person saying, why, if that guy's 50 and I'm 50, how come he's successful and I'm not? What am I doing wrong? What am I not using within myself? What talent am I not capitalizing within myself? What laziness can I get rid of? Why am I being complacent? How can I better myself that I can also become like that? That's what jealousy should be doing. But there's also a second benefit of jealousy. The Medrash says, the al Shimoni, one of the commentators on the, Talmud, on, the, on the Torah tells us, and he uses it on the verse in Tehillim and it says, God says, be jealous. Because if not for jealousy, the world would not stand. A person wouldn't plant a vineyard, a, woman, a person wouldn't get married, a person wouldn't make a business. And he brings the example from Abraham. Abraham saw Malki Tzedek. We read in the book of Genesis, he came to Malki Tzedek, Malki Tzedek blessed him. Who is Malki Tzedek? It's Shane. And he asked Shane, the son of Noah, how did you survive the flood? What were you doing while you were in the ark? And why did you make it out of the ark? Malkitzedek, shame told him was because we took care of the animals in the ark. Abraham said, if this was the reward that he got, because shame was a very wealthy individual, he said, if this was the reward that he got for caring for animals, how much more so if I care for God's people? 
And that's when Abraham went around teaching people about godliness. So where did it come from? Where did Abraham's impetus come to be able? What was the catalyst to get him to make this phenomenal change in the world? What was that catalyst? Was the, a catalyst was jealousy. So what does jealousy do? Jealousy gives us the ability to reach deeper within ourselves. Jealousy is there to help us think who we are, what can we do, and how can we make it great. Going back to the story that we did before. When a child is jealous, we don't say, ah, don't be jealous. Like what did Rebbe Tzarifka say? You're jealous, right? But just stand on a chair. Don't knock them down into the hole. When a child is jealous or when a person is jealous from somebody else, what do we do? Instead of choking that cry for help, understand that there's, this is a yearning for being something better. I want to be able to leave my box. I want to be able to accomplish more. I want to re revolutionize who I am. I want to develop every single talent that God has given me. I don't want to stay dormant. I'm not satisfied with what I am. That's what jealousy is a call for. And the same ideas by a person we have all this different type of uh, lusts or different types of behaviors that a person wants. And all of them, a guy wants a nicer car, a nicer home, a nicer, better food, whatever it may be. And you can say these are all materialistic pleasures that comes because of jealousy. But there's an underlying thirst here. It's expressed itself in these materialistic things because the person's not focusing on what that real thirst is. The real thirst for jealousy is to become a better person and therefore it's being sidetracked by the nicer car, the nicer home, or looking at the more money, whatever the other person has. And this is where we talk about the concept of jealousy. The jealousy that we have over here is that in every single thing there's a negative and there's a positive. The negative of jealousy is very simple. I look at the other person, I'm jealous of what they have, and therefore instead of looking at what I can become better, I look at what that person is and I, I bemoan the very fact that that person has it. The positive of jealousy is that I look at myself and saying, listen, what am I, a salesman? Okay, let me look at what that guy is doing that makes him a great salesman and I can become a great salesman too. Let me learn from everybody around me of how I can make myself better. If they're successful, that means they're doing something right. So let me see what I can do because I must have that as well because if I see it in them, I can be successful as well. Many times, you know, as we mentioned many times before, Hasidism explains to us every single person in this world has a unique talent, quality, and mission that God has given him. And the mission that we have is based on the qualities and the talents that God gave us. And just because that person is successful in area A, and you're not, that could very well be because that's not your area. And you have your own area to shine in. You have your own beautiful way that you can develop and you can also be graded. And therefore, when a person looks and sees that he has this level of jealousy, we have to ask ourselves, what are we truly missing? What's really gonna make us happy? What's really gonna fill our life? Is it from those things that I'll have temporary pleasures, a new car, a new home, whatever it may be? Or is there something, there's a thirst, there's a dying thirst within me, which asks and craves to be a better person, to, be a be to finally realize my potential, my mission, my job in this world. The Rebbe once responded to somebody in a letter where the person asked the question, and the Rebbe writes, you write to me that you are suffering from the fact that you're jealous of your peers in studying of Torah, and even though that you are studying Torah, but you're not at the same level as the people around you. 
And the Rebbe says, I wonder why you asked that or why you're upset about that. And as it clearly states in the sages that when the scholars are jealous from one another, it gives them, accelerates them, it helps them learn better. And therefore, what does the Rebbe say? Continue to be jealous of your peers in that area of learning Torah, and that will cause you to accelerate in learning Torah as well. Because the more you learn about how great they are, you will reflect them to yourself to realize how much you can do. And as it's brought down in the Hayom Yom, as we discussed many times, that when it comes to physical things, a person must look at his one that has less than him and say, wow, look how lucky I am to have so much. And when it comes to spiritual things, we have to look at somebody that has more than us and say, I wish I could reach their level. So when we talk about jealousy, we can understand, going back to why is this week's Torah reading then named Korach? Wasn't Korach an evil person? Why are we naming a Torah reading after a person who seemingly was symbolic of the first coup on the Jewish people? It's because from Korach we learn a very important lesson, which is to be jealous. That when we see a person who is in a higher level than us, a Kohen Gadol, that every Jew should desire to be a Kohen Gadol. We all want to be a Kohen Gadol. Yes, I can be the richest person, I can be in charge, I can be the wealthiest person in all of the Jewish people. But that's not, I'm happy, not happy with that. I want to reach a level of holiness of a Kohen Gadol. What was the problem that Korach had? He wanted what was Aaron's. He didn't recognize what his mission is. He wasn't just jealous that he wanted to attain a level of holiness, but he wanted to be somebody else's holiness. That was his mistake. But the desire to be holy, that's a good thing. The desire, the jealousy to want to be a Kohen Gadol, that every single person should have that desire. And therefore, who else had that desire? Moses. Moses clearly said, I also want to be a Kohen Gadol. But Moses recognized there's a Moshe, there's an Aaron, and only one person can have that. Korach's mistake was that he wanted to be something he's not. He should have recognized, I want to be a level of the Kohen Gadol, but my job is to be the wealthiest Jew and be my influence on those people around it. That means I can want something, but I have to also recognize who I am, what my quality, what my mission in this world is. And when it comes to a person using jealousy to try to take what somebody else is, that's what the Mishnah says, drives you from the world. Jealousy, lust, and honor drives a person from the world as a type of jealousy. A jealousy which is about taking what somebody else has, not about developing what you have. For the same reason as we mentioned, Moshe was jealous of Yeshua and Aaron because he saw a Jew that was climbing spiritually. He says, I wish I can do that too. But it wasn't about taking away from them. Moshe wished them well. Moshe blessed Aaron, blessed Yeshua, gave him the energy. But he says, I wish I could be that place as well. The difference between jealousy that drives a person from this world or jealousy that creates wisdom is self-understood. Jealousy that drives a person from this world is when you want to be somebody else. Jealousy that creates wisdom is when you use the jealousy of somebody else's wisdom or somebody else's spirituality to be able to develop your own. That you see that person's learning so well, you say, okay, let me learn as well also. I see that person's doing a good time learning. I also want to learn from that. I want to be able to compete with him. I want to be able to understand what he's learning. I don't want to take away from him. I want to be able to be on the same level. I want to be able to join. 
And this we understand the difference between what it means. Hasameich b'chalka, one who is happy is, is one that is, one who is wealthy, or one that is rich is happy with his lot. Meaning that you are happy with your portion in the world that God gave you to enjoy. Every single person God gave them a unique talent, quality, mission in this world. And what does it mean you're wealthy? You are wealthy, one who is happy with his lot, meaning that you are taking your lot in this world and you're maximizing it to its best. You're not just sitting back and saying, okay, I'm happy with my lot, I don't have to do anything. I am happy with what God has given me and therefore I will use it to the greatest extent. And make sure not to be complacent, but every single day work on it, make it better, make it healthier, and make it to the best that it can be. That's what it means being happy with your lot. As we're now right before the third of Thomas, and the third of Thomas is going to be this Shabbos. And the third of Thomas is a time when we commemorate and we remember the Rebbe, who is probably the most impactful individual in this in the 21st century, who has made a difference in people's lives. The very fact that we are studying from the Rebbe's uh, talks and works, not only here, but in people all around the world, how they've been influenced and changed by the fact of the missions and the teachings of the Rebbe. But the Rebbe was this type of individual, as we mentioned, who did not just, was never satisfied. Meaning he was never satisfied that if once there was a person who came and said, I brought a hundred, I have a school of a hundred people. And the Rebbe said, how many Jewish children are there in, the, in your city? He says, it's about 5,000. So he said, so there's another 4,900 kids that are not in the school. But the Rebbe didn't just demand it from other people. What he demanded from others, he did himself. And every single week, whether it was giving talks or giving discourses or standing on, on standing on his feet, giving blessings or helping people, whatever it may be in any shape or form, whatever the Rebbe demanded of others, he himself did to an extreme. Always wanting more, always climbing higher, always achieving more. And there's a fascinating story, first-hand story that was given, that was said by Rabbi Shmuel Rabinovich. He was the rabbi of the Kotel and the holy places in Israel. As his job as the rabbi of the Kotel, he has connections with many Jews of influence around the world that come to visit the Kotel and because of that contribute towards the Kotel and its different projects that it may be. One of these people was a fellow by the name of Jerry Sharstein, a fellow who was a senator even in the Canadian parliament, a very wealthy individual. And a few years ago, this fellow Jerry called up Rabbi Rabbi Rubinowitz and invited him to his 80th birthday that he was having. And he asked him if he could come to his 80th birthday because of the situation and things that were going on in Israel at the time, he wasn't able to go. But this fellow asked him if he doesn't mind calling in and giving greetings to the assembled at his 80th birthday. He calls up and he hears that before, while he calls in, he hears that this fellow is uh, in honor, by his 80th birthday, he was doing a big merge and acquisition. He was 80 years old and doing a big investment and merges and a big acquisition that he was going to do with uh, China and Japan. And he was asking the rabbi, Rabinowitz, to call up and give him a blessing on his new endeavor. The rabbi hears the request and he gets like all surprised. He says, I don't, he says, why are you so surprised? He says, because what do you bless an 80-year-old who just is starting a new acquisition, a new business? You know, 80 years old is a little old to start, uh, you know, getting involved in a new business. So he says, let me tell you a story. He says, when I was about um, 
40 years old, 40, 50 years old. He's 50 years old, he says. When I was 50 years old, I came to a certain crisis in my life, midlife crisis. I was doing well, but things weren't, you know, moving as I wanted. And I wasn't, and I looked around and I said, people in my class are probably doing better than I was, better than I was at that age. And I felt down about myself. My wife tried to help me out. And she said, you know, there's a rabbi in Brooklyn who's a brilliant man. People go to him for advice. Why don't you go ask the rabbi for advice? And he was referring to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So I went to the Rebbe and I had an audience with the Rebbe. And I asked the Rebbe, and I was talking to the Rebbe, but I couldn't get myself to say what was bothering me, but the Rebbe saw that it was down. And the Rebbe asked me, what's bothering you? And I told the Rebbe that I'm 50 years old. And I feel like I'm, you know, I'm depleted. I have nothing to do anymore. I'm too old to get involved in new acquisitions and new things. It's too old for me. The Rebbe looked at me and says, have you learned the Bible? Are you familiar with any stories of the Torah? So I said, I, you know, I went to Hebrew school. I know a few stories. He says, you know the story of Moses? He says, yeah. He says, how old was Moses when he decided to take on the job of leading the Jewish people? 80 years old. Much older than you are. And at 80 years old, Moshe decided that he's going to go and take on the, the job of leading the Jewish people. Not an easy job, as you can see, that would happen the next 40 years. The Rebbe said, you're only 50. You got 30, he's got 30 years on you. You got plenty of time. And therefore, you're able to do it. This fellow looks to the rabbi that he called Rabbi Rabbanus and he says, today I can make good on the Rebbe's words. That I'm 80 and I'm able to make investments. I'm able to go further and still feel a young businessman. And he said that the Rebbe told him then at the time, he said, Moses never looked back. Moses never looked back and said, look what I accomplished. I'm so great. I was ready to king of Ethiopia. I did so much. What did Moses do? He looked further. He looked ahead of himself. He says, what can I still do? What can I still accomplish? How much more can I still do? And the Rebbe said these words to him. As long as we, a person looks forward to what they can still do, they'll stay young. But if they look backward and say, oh, look what I've done, that's when they get old. If you want to stay young, you have to look and say, what can I still do? What can I ought to accomplish? What can I still invest in? What can I make a difference in this world? The moment we sit back and say, oh, look, I have grandchildren, I have a beautiful family, I had a wonderful career, I can retire. That's when you start feeling old. And this is what this week's Torah reading tells us. We're now in the 28 years, unfortunately, since Gimel Thomas. We have that ability where God tells us, learn from Korah. Be jealous. But you be jealous in the right things. Don't be satisfied with what you've done. The Rebbe is teaching us, don't be satisfied what I've done yesterday. I have still more to do today. And the key ingredient, if you want to stay young, look ahead. Don't look back. There you go. Now you got the young blood. <laughs> Next week, because it's... Uh...